The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. This is Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell. We are very happy to have you with us of a Saturday and happy to be in the good company across the miles via Skype, joined by Mike Roberts. He likes to be called the dude, but once in a while we slip and use his real name. Mike, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well, and you can, uh, you can call me by any name you want. How about that? As long as the check gets cashed, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're, we're here on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. There's something I have to share about that, but you know, Suzanne, I'm going to go ahead and do that in the course of an interview with a gentleman who is highly esteemed internationally. We're proud to have him as a friend. He is one of the world's foremost psychic mediums, and he happens to be a lawyer. He's the psychic lawyer. And we're talking about Mark Anthony. Did we count up how many times he's been on our show? No, but I'll give you that answer shortly. <laughs> okay. We're going to check with our, our vault. Our accountant. Yeah, the accountant will have the answer. Let's go ahead and give Mark Anthony his mad props, and we'll bring him on air. Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, is a world-renowned fourth-generation psychic medium who specializes in communication with spirits. He's an Oxford-educated attorney and certified mediator licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. He has also studied mediumship at the prestigious Arthur Finley College for the Advancement of Psychic Science. Mark appears worldwide on radio and TV as a psychic medium legal analyst in high-profile murder cases and as a paranormal expert. He regularly appears on all the major television stations and is a featured speaker at conventions, grief support groups, hospice organizations, conferences, expos, Edgar Cayce's Association for Research and Enlightenment, and universities, including Harvard, Brown, and Yale. We'll be sure to give out his contact information later in the show, but what we want to do now is welcome Mark Anthony to Manson Mitchell once again. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Suzanne and, and Gary. It's all, I always enjoy working with the, the two of you because, you, you know, Suzanne, you're like my sister from another mister, and Gary, you're like my brother from another mother. Ah, I like that. <laughs> uh, when it comes to metaphysics, nothing beats incest. That sounds as <laughs> That works for yeah. us. <laughs> well, we're speaking metaphysically for everybody who takes literal translations of what we're saying. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mark, delighted to have you with us. You know, I, I thought because it's December 7th, I wanted to open in a way that we would not ordinarily, and that is to have you, if you would, share the career and the life's meaning, the tremendous responsibilities that fell on the shoulders of your own dear father, now on the other side of life there. But please tell us about your father and his role in the military and the significance that uh, December 7th would have to someone like your dad. Wow. I mean, we, we could spend a, a couple episodes on this, but my dad was, he lived in a, a small town in Pennsylvania. And when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor 78 years ago today, December 7th of 1941, shockwaves went through the whole world, and it even went through his small town. And even though he was too young to sign up for the military, I believe he was 15 at the time, he, he wanted to. So then when he turned 17, my dad went to 
to sign up. And what's really interesting, um, this is one of those bizarre synchronistic uh, events. His best friend, Jack, wanted to be in the Navy, and Jack went to the Navy office, and they were closed for lunch, but the Marines next door were open, so he went to the Marines. Um, my dad wanted to be a Marine, and when he got to the Marine office, they were closed for lunch, so he said, ah, oh, heck it, I'll just join the Navy. So it's like this weird hand of fate switched their position. So my, my father's mother, my grandmother, was horrified when she found out that her son had lied to the military about his age. And it, and, and, uh, but like millions of young, young patriotic American men, he joined the military. My dad had never even seen the ocean until he started basic training. And then he said a few months later, there he was on a ship, and he said, we were leaving San Francisco, going under the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said the thought came to his mind, he says, will I ever, ever see America again? And my dad uh, saw heavy combat. He was on a smaller ship called an LSM, landing ship medium. But he was also part of an elite unit that they called Underwater Demolition Team, the UDT. They, back then they called them Navy Frogmen. His unit evolved into what we now know as the Navy SEALs. So my dad was one of the original Navy SEALs. Well, he saw um, action in the Philippines in the Battle of Lady Gulf, and that's the first time Japanese um, started using kamikazes on our fleet. He was at Iwo Jima, Vanatu, uh, but the battle, uh, Gary, that he talked the most about, I mean, all of them were intense, was the Battle of Okinawa. And it was actually his birthday. It was Easter Sunday of 1945. And Okinawa was the largest fleet in, in history. It was over 1,200 U.S. and Allied ships, mostly U.S., but there were some Australian, a few British, couple free French and a few uh, few uh, Dutch East Indies uh, ships. And the Japanese knew that they had to, to, to win this battle because if Okinawa fell, that was essentially the gateway to, to the occupation conquest of Japan. And for 88 days, Japan threw everything they possibly could at us. And um, the Marines were storming the beaches. And my dad's ship the LSM, landing ship medium. What was so special about these ships? And his ship was LSM-72. Didn't even have a name, but there was a lot of them. And what it is, it drew such a shallow draft that the ships could hit the beaches, and then they would drop this huge door, and about half a dozen tanks and a whole troop, you know, corps of Marines would, would hit the beaches, Okay. And then, of course, my dad was also involved in special operations, but that, that's another, another uh, story altogether. And there's two incidents um, or, that, I, that I'd like to talk about. Is during the battle, um, his ship was, was next to, um, actually his ship was, was going in into, to hit the beaches, and the Japanese were trying really hard to sink the LSMs because if they did, they'd kill the Marines that were going aboard. And all of a sudden, they saw a torpedo plane, a Japanese torpedo plane, drop out of the sky, and, and it let loose a torpedo, and it was headed right at my dad's ship. And he was, um, um, the station he had was on the very top of the ship as a gunner, and he had a 50-millimeter um, uh, machine gun. 
and everyone's screaming, shoot the Dan Torpedo, and all the guys on the ship, they were shooting everything because they could see the, the bubbles in the water of the torpedo, and they're shooting, 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 and, and all of a sudden, Dad said, um, his whole life flashed before his eyes. He said, am I going to live? Um, will I die? Because the thing is, his ship was only about 300 feet long, and those torpedoes are designed to sink aircraft carriers and battleships that were six and 900 feet long and, and 100 times the size, literally, of that ship. And he, he said, all of a sudden he heard someone scream, hang on, and everyone braced themselves, and nothing happened. And then they looked, and the torpedo had gone right under their ship. And that's because the LSM drew such a shallow draft of water, it only went in the water... Um, it was like nine feet deep, and the torpedo was like 15 feet. So he said it was like a matter of six feet, okay? The torpedo went under uh, the ship, and he said everyone was like, oh, dear God. And then uh, later on in the battle, um, they were next to um, a flotilla that included a, an aircraft carrier and four U.S. Corsairs. Those were the... Uh, um, Fighter, fighter jets, or they weren't jets then, they were propeller planes, but those were the fighter craft that had been launched off of this, this um, aircraft carrier. And they were coming into the aircraft carrier for a landing. And my dad, he and the captain of his ship, who was only like a 24-year-old lieutenant, they didn't get along very well. Because, you know, my dad was special forces and go off on these special missions missions. And he said, he goes, I was a cocky young, you know, SOP, you know, and so... He said he was kind of mouthy to, to the, the skipper, and the skipper was always looking for something to get on my dad, you know. So anyway, so dad sees these four Corsairs coming for a landing, and all of a sudden, out of the clouds, a Japanese Zero uh, was right on their tail and started opening fire. And all of a sudden, um, everyone's like, look at that. And my dad jumped up, grabbed the fifty caliber machine gun, opened fire, and he saw the look on the Japanese pilot's face. Uh, when, when he killed him, and the Japanese Zero exploded. Well, the skipper went berserk on my dad. He said, you fired without being ordered. You, he goes, now I got you. He goes, your butt is going to the brig, and he's screaming at my dad because, you know, he broke, uh, you know, he, he fired without being ordered to, and all of a sudden the communications officer goes, hey, Skip, he goes, what? What the hell do you want? He goes, Admiral Halsey. Um, is radioing from the carrier to congratulate you on splashing the zero. And my dad's looking at him going, and you were saying, sir, <laughs> like that. <laughs> Little did they know, Admiral Bull Halsey, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, was on that aircraft carrier and saw my dad shoot down the zero that saved four Corsairs and four pilots. And, oh but, and, and not long after that, um, my dad received word that his best friend, Jack, and he knew Jack was part of the Marines that had hit Okinawa, had been killed, uh, died on the beaches of Okinawa. And my dad always said if the office hadn't, you know, like when he and his friend went a couple years before, and if the Marine office hadn't been closed when Jack got there and uh, and the Nate in other words, it was like the hand of fate made my dad join the Navy and Jack join the Marines when my dad wanted to be a Marine and Jack wanted to be a sailor. And they both were going to the same office on the same day. 
and it was a matter of maybe 20 minutes that switched their places. And, you know, my dad and I used to talk quite a bit about this. And um, I was a lot younger. My parents didn't expect to have me, okay? I was, you know, they'd been married for some time, so they had me a little bit later in life. And um, my dad used to spend a lot of time telling me his stories of the Second World War. And I have to conclude all of this with dad passed um, two years ago. And one of the great privileges of my life was going on the honor flight with him. And the honor flight is an organization. It was started by some pilots. And they, they fly World War II, Korean War, and now Vietnam uh, War veterans to Washington, D.C. for the better part of 24 hours so that they can visit and see all the monuments erected to them. And going with my dad and a contingent of World War II and Korean veterans and seeing these guys in their late 80s and 90s all of a sudden get all energized and start talking about stories of the war and seeing the crowds of people coming out to cheer for these veterans at every single place we went. I mean, it's hard for me to, to even talk about it without tears coming to my eyes. And to see my dad experience one glimmer of hope and glory again because at this time he had cancer and was dying of cancer and the honor flight was my father's last great adventure here in this world so for those of you who are connected with the honor flight i want to salute you and thank you i want to honor and thank all of our military veterans past and present and and future and um it's just very humbling uh, for me to have gotten, if, if only for a day, a chance to see um, why these men and women, because there were some, uh, some uh, female, some wax, and some Navy nurses that were on this too, why they were called the greatest generation. That's beautifully said, Mark. Thank you so much. That's just wonderful. Today of all days, it's just important to remember my own father was in the U.S. Navy, entered in 1943, saw World War II through to its conclusion, and uh, for several months afterward, he was between Philadelphia and Bremerton, Washington, got back to Philadelphia where they discharged him, and he went back into civilian life. And what's interesting about that, you talked about these men in their 80s and even 90s talking about their war experiences. It's interesting, Mark, because my dad talked about it somewhat, especially to me privately, now, he wasn't in the blood and guts type of scenarios and the thick of the battle such as your father was. There, My dad was a storekeeper. He's one of the most organized people on the planet during his lifetime, I assure you. And he was a storekeeper on the USS Manatee, a tanker. We bring the power was their motto. And of course, as you well understand, essentially you're on a big floating gas can. And so my dad was exceptionally fortunate even missing the Battle of Leyte Gulf, where there was a destroyer sunk by a Japanese submarine. And they, my dad's tanker steamed into port a couple of days after this happened. I mean, he could have really seen some action, which he would have preferred not to do. My dad wanted to get back to civilian life in one piece there. But he was a patriotic American who didn't, wa didn't wave the flag a lot. He didn't want to talk about those stories in a way that was self-aggrandizing. 
He was a modest man who did his part and like maybe a million other guys just left the war behind. They didn't forget it, but he didn't tout his wartime experiences or what happened around him. He that was then World War Two. This is now. And he entered a teaching career at which he excelled for three decades. So everybody has those memories. It's unforgettable, but people will react to war and, and the former experiences of war each in their own way. They, they absolutely do. And, you know, um, it's important for us to remember that that um, the, the military personnel like your dad, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, in, on the front lines in the combat, but you've got to supply and provision and support the troops. Okay, you got to get their food's got to get there, uniforms, clothing, medicine. I mean, the support staff. And if you think about, you know, what your dad did, you can't fight a war without, you know, without fuel, without food, without munitions. And then there's all of uh, the women that were in the war effort that served as um, nurses and clerical personnel. I mean, you know, war isn't just the the, the warrior running and, and you know, taking fire and, and shooting. There's a whole apparatus to it. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're on a show, uh, your show today, which is a spiritually themed show. And I know a lot of people that are like, oh, war is so terrible. Yes, it is. It is the absolute, you know, who's the quote, war is hell? Well, it absolutely is hell. Unfortunately, as much as we say that we want to raise our vibration and that our vibrations will get people to be nice, well, that, that, that certainly I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. But the, the hard, cold reality is war is part of living in the material world. It is an absolutely terrible thing. I don't understand why humanity can't seem to get, uh, get the, the, the memo that we need to, to stop killing each other and destroying our planet. But war is a reality, and all I can say is I am so thankful that there are brave men and women who are willing to put everything on the line to protect us. And I would certainly hope that maybe um, eventually one day we all will join hands as brothers and sisters globally and sing Kumbaya. But until then, the best offense or the best defense is a good offense. And um, I'm just hoping that uh, humanity eventually gets, uh, gets the newsletter. Um, I was t- talking to um, it's my dad went into aerospace, and I've met a number of astronauts. I've met John Glenn. Um, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Captain Mike Foreman, who piloted uh, the space shuttle. And I remember hearing something Edgar Mitchell, one of the astronauts who walked on the moon, and he said, when you're in space and you're looking down on this this planet, this planet Earth, and you see how alive and beautiful, he says it's like you know the life is just pulsating from it. And he said, then it dawns on you, this is the only place we have to live. Yet, it seems like human beings are going out of their way, our destructive capability with nuclear and and chemical and biological weapons, everything that we're doing to our planet, it seems like we're going out of our way to to make it eventually uninhabitable. it's, It's really a form of insanity. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that, and I'm glad that global warming and ecology are up for discussion quite a bit uh, in this year's election as to where people stand with saving our planet and reducing our footprint and all of that. Gary and I were watching a show the other night, Mark, and I want to say it was the History Channel, although I'm I'm not certain about it. 
But we were watching a show where the um, research expert on um, death and dying was, and military was saying that if you if you look over a very 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 long span of time, that we are actually getting less violent over the decades, over the hundred years or the millennia. And and what she cited as her proof of that was how many people died by percentage for various conflicts. And it turns out that the uh, Mongol War resulted in one out of 10 people dying on the planet. 10% of the entire planet died in that in the mongol invasion and so when we see these mass shootings and all this stuff that's going on it's still less than what it was back then as a percentage of the population we are in no way have we gotten to any kind of enlightened point of wiping out killing one another but i think we might be going in the right direction so I was I was happy to see that on television. I'm certainly I, I'm certainly receptive to that. Um, and uh, with the Mongols, um, a lot of what in what I do is uh, yes, I'm known as a psychic lawyer, and I appear on shows like this and and, and on radio and on television to to um, um, not only as a psychic medium but also as a paranormal expert. And one of my, uh, my other brand is known as the Psychic Explorer. So I've spent my life traveling to mystical and spiritual sites. And last night I gave a presentation that I will be giving this coming weekend in Sarasota at the Sarasota Center of Light. It's called the Star of Bethlehem. Um, actually, it's called the Mystical Magi, the Mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. And I go through the uh, um, ancient astrology, the modern astrophysics and astronomy, and archaeology to explain what this uh, highly unusual phenomenon was. And so I've spent a lot of my life studying um, ancient history. And the Mongols were just absolutely uh, horrifying warriors. Um, They would go in and burn cities to the ground, execute the population. If you resisted, it was bad. If you didn't resist, it was even worse because they had absolutely no no compassion or respect for somebody who wouldn't at least fight for themselves. And they they conquered an empire from Korea all the way to the border of Poland. I mean, basically, I mean, uh, the the entire country of Russia, China, Mongolia, and and, um, other areas um, involved, and they did it through this absolutely horrifying manner. What's fascinating about the Mongols is, Two generations after Genghis Khan, his grandson, Kublai Khan, who's the one that Marco Polo um, met, was had a very different philosophy on things. All right, so they'd conquered this great empire, and they realized you can't just burn people alive and cut heads off and, and rule it by terror. They had to start assimilating things. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is you bring such a fascinating point, Suzanne. Maybe, yes, our destructive capability, we could start a nuclear war and wipe out all life on this planet within probably about an hour, maybe less. Um, that That's how terrifying it is. But you get to a point where you start realizing 
there's no way that we can control this planet or each other simply through means of terror. Um, I just would like it if we could evolve beyond these ridiculous uh, conflicts and also the, the religious fanaticism that's fueling this, these jihads and, and all of this um, thing that go contrary to anything any great spiritual teacher taught. So in, in, in one aspect, um, our destructive capability is worse than it ever has been. On the other, like you're saying, is people are more intelligent and more literate globally, and we also have the capacity to be more aware of what really is at stake here. And what's at stake here is our very existence as a species. Oh, I agree. There's I no agree. doubt about that. Um, there's, a, you know, we're we're here remembering December seventh. I'm going to go ahead and just mention this really quickly because if not today, then when would I mention it? I don't. I might have mentioned this one time in the course of our 12 plus years doing this show, but something happened quite inadvertently, Mark, on November 7, 1991. So we're talking about a, a month before, a month of the day before the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. I was in another relationship at the time and living in Seattle, and we flew to Honolulu and spent seven nights there. It was a great time, first time I'd ever been to Hawaii. So I decided, okay, I absolutely have to go to Pearl Harbor. That was one of the first things we did. We get to Pearl Harbor, and they have the visitor center, and there's a film that you can see, Then, and it really documents it incredibly well. Then you line up, you get on these boats to take you over to the memorial itself, the Arizona Memorial. Right. And uh, we took that trip, and you walk around for an allotted length of time, then everybody gets back on the boat, and you're hustled back to the uh, visitor center where others are waiting to make the trip across. Well, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> this was inadvertent, but I got split up for my girlfriend, right? And uh, there were quite a few Japanese tourists there. The, the word of mouth is that the Japanese don't go and visit much. Don't you believe it there? Because there were plenty of Japanese tourists there. And it was interesting for them to come over and get our point of view, because in school they learn it quite differently. But there I am on the Arizona Memorial, and I went into a, a, an inner space, a sanctum there at one end where they have a giant memorial. It's, it's a... Um, it's a, a monument to all the men who died on the Arizona. And I was looking at that, and I said, oh, my goodness, it looks like brothers. Oh, my goodness, there's a father and son. And I was just really absorbed in that experience. And I'm telling you, it's a very humbling feeling and hallowed. That was hallowed space. And I turned around, Mark, and I'm alone. The boat oh left with everybody. The boat left me behind because I, I wasn't visible in there. It wasn't my intention. I just wasn't visible and I was in my head, right? So they all, and I look and I see the boat going and I see there were a lot of Japanese tourists, as I say, with, the, with their black hair. And then there's this one, one blonde woman sitting there. She left without me and she's taking the ride back. And I never felt so lonely in my life. So wow. what I did was, because I had approximately five minutes before the next boat showed up, and then I went back with them. But in the space of that approximately five minutes, I stood on the railing overlooking the galley where the bomb, the fatal bomb, was dropped 
and it exploded in the galley in that section of the ship in the Arizona was thus doomed. And I stood and looked out toward the visitor center where they hoist the flag and you can actually purchase flags and they will run it up this little flagpole on the Arizona and then they take it down, but it's flown on the Arizona and you can take the flag home as a very wonderful souvenir of your visit. And so I'm, they didn't have the flag up at that time because as I say, I was there alone and I, the rope to hold the flag was clanging against the bell on that side of the ship. And it was so mournful. And I'm looking down at the galley to the water where those are still entombed, those brave men, those sailors who never made it out, some of them not knowing what hit them. And they're there buried at sea at the memorial. And I'm telling you, in the classic sense, Mark, that was perhaps the eeriest experience I ever had in my life. I must have looked like I was pantomiming because I was physically trying to push emotions out of my body that I was experiencing. And I've never had an experience like it, as you might imagine. But I'm so grateful that I could be there. And for five minutes, I was alone on the memorial. That was an amazing wow. memory. I'll never forget that experience. Well, you know, you, you pick up on the residual energy of all those men who died. I mean, you think about them, the vast majority of them were probably between 18 and 22 years old. They were so young. And, you know, I, I remember talking to my dad. He's like, how do they catch us with our pants down like that? He said, you know, it was a couple weeks before Christmas. Um, it was a Sunday morning. You know, we weren't expecting it. Um, and, uh, but also we weren't watching the signs either because a Japanese mini sub had been spotted in Pearl Harbor. And then on our radar, um, in, in, on Oahu, they picked up several aircraft and the, uh, commander of, of the radar station or they, or they, uh, the tech or, um, um, radared it in. They said, oh, that must be a delivery of P-38s that we're expecting. And when they initially picked that up on radar, they should have gone to, to red alert. Um, with the Arizona Memorial, it's, people can't visit it anymore. There's been so much deterioration and cracks in it. I was in Hawaii last year um, filming a pilot for a TV show. And there's so much damage to it that it's not safe. And they, when I was there, there didn't appear to be any efforts being undertaken to repair it. I'm sure that it will be at some point. Um, also, since we're talking about Pearl Harbor, um, I would like to, to um, express my condolences to the service personnel and to any civilians that may have been killed in the shooting uh, a few days ago at Pearl Harbor. Uh, that was a, a terrible tragedy that happened there. And also, I believe it was yesterday at uh, the Pensacola Naval Air Station in Florida. So... You know, it's we live in this era now where people are going berserk in public with with weapons, and it really saddens me that uh, that these things happen. And um, I think, for the most part, human beings are are good, but unfortunately, there is a streak of negativity that runs through a lot of people. Uh, and you know, I just hope that our politicians and our sociologists and our psychiatrists and psychologists and figure out a realistic plan to do something about this. I'm tired of hearing, oh, Congress said everyone's in our thoughts and prayers. Well, that's nice. But God helps those who help themselves, and sometimes we have to answer the call to action, just like all these servicemen have and women have over the, the decades, the centuries now. 
There are other countries who are leading the way and showing us the way if we will pay attention to that, Mark. So, uh, oh, sure. Know, good on them. Let's go ahead and take our break. We have just one, our halftime break. We'll take it now. And when we come back, we will be talking more with Mark Anthony, author of Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. We want to hear about his uh, upcoming appearance in Sarasota, his books, website, and all that good information, plus more questions and answers when we return. So stay with us, and thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is mansonmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. The holiday gift-giving season was right around the corner. Now it's here. It's time to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road Magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue, American Road makes a perfect gift for road-tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com. That's AmericanRoadMagazine.com. Click subscribe. And for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Get inspired. Every hour, right here on Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Thank you for being with us. We are talking <clears throat> with Mark Anthony. Mark, if people would like to get in touch with you, what is your website? How can they connect with you on social media, get your books, and about your upcoming visit here to Sarasota? We have local Florida listeners who may be very interested in the following information. Mark, go. Um, visit my website, evidenceofeternity.com. It's the same as my, my second book, Evidence of Eternity. And there you can find about, out about my two events at the Sarasota Center of Light, this coming Friday, December 13th, I'll be presenting the Mystical Magi, the Mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. And please do not expect a dry lecture, okay? I am going to take the audience on a mystical journey through time and show how modern astronomy, ancient astrology, astrophysics, and archaeology 
prove that the Star of Bethlehem did exist, although it isn't quite what we see on the Christmas card. In fact, not even close. And then on Saturday, December 14th, I'll be conducting an evening of spirit communication. And that's where um, I'll be using um, my ability as a psychic medium to connect random audience members with their loved ones and spirit. And uh, both events will be starting at 7.30 p.m. If you go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, it should be, or not should be, it will be under the calendar of events. Also on my website, you can please sign up for my newsletter. If you would like to purchase my books, you can do that. Um, find out, uh, follow my YouTube channel, um, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's all through through my website, Evidence of eternity.com. Also, you can sign up for readings. I do a lot of readings um, um, by telephone. And uh, I'll tell you, um, Gary and Suzanne, I'm really excited about uh, coming to Sarasota. Sarasota is the last stop of my 2019 frequency tour. I have been all over the country. Yeah, I've been um, from California through Texas, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, of course, all over Florida. Um, it has been just a really amazing Colorado. Gosh, how could I forget Colorado? I'm probably forgetting about three or four more states, but it's been a very, very busy year, and it looks like my 20, um, 2020 tour is once again going to be spanning uh, the U.S. and I believe also Mexico. There's an international consciousness conference uh, talking um, to my manager, Rocky, about me uh, coming to uh, to the country of Mexico to discuss near-death experiences and how quantum physics explains the reality not only of near-death experiences, but also of the afterlife itself. So I've been very busy, and I'm working on book number three. Uh, I've got another another you know, few chapters to write, then I'm going to you know, go through and make sure all the, the grammar got all my T's crossed and I's dotted. And you know what's funny, Gary and Suzanne, I, I, I realize when, when I came on the show today, every time I have a major event, it seems like Manson Mitchell is my kickoff. Because I, I'll never forget, I was on your show, um, I think the day or the day before my first book, Never Letting Go, came out. I was on your show the day uh, of um, when Evidence of Eternity was released. And so Manson Mitchell is my my good luck charm. So thank you for having me on the show again. And and I'm and I'm like I said, I'm excited about coming to Sarasota because the mystical magi, you know, are Christian symbols. And and this is not just a this is Christianity lecture. You have to believe this. <clears throat> That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I am presenting evidence. I'm not telling anyone how to believe or what they should believe. I am presenting evidence, which is is so fascinating. I've spent years researching this, and with my talks, um, they're all uh, very colorful uh, PowerPoint presentations, and I go through and that they use that to illustrate what I'm explaining to the crowd. And the Mystical Magi is part of my ancient mystery series. Um, I've I've got a number of of presentations that delve into um, mysteries that have have confronted us and and perplexed people for centuries. Then I have the quantum physics lectures 
about the reality of near-death experiences, how spirit communication works, about reincarnation, and then I have my uplifting and healing messages like intuition as the key to your success, and how spirit communication is a very powerful tool in healing from the death of a loved one. And um, so in 2020, I'm the keynote speaker in March at the Helping Parents Heal Conference, which is going to be in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. And, um, and you know, it's, it's always such an honor to be able to work with, with, uh, with the Shining Light parents. That's, that's the term that's been given for bereaved parents. Um, I can't imagine the pain and agony that that people go through losing losing a child and i'm so honored to work with people that are have put together this organization to help help these individuals who are crushed from the loss of uh, of a child so so this coming uh weekend with the spirit communication certainly this is open to all people of all faiths anyone who believes that life is everlasting and that it's possible to communicate with the other side and that'll be saturday december 14th at the sarasota center of light and um please uh, my my event on on uh, the mystical magi which is this coming friday the 13th um this is family friendly it's open to all people of all faiths and uh like I said, don't expect a dry lecture. I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun. I've spent a lot of time on this. In fact, I gave this actual presentation last night in the Melbourne, Florida area, and I've been so overwhelmed by the positive feedback that I've, I'm, I've been getting emails and, and uh, actually texts and calls from people that were, were very excited about it. So this is, this is a very special, uh, let's call it the Spirit of Christmas uh, holiday event. I like that spirit of Christmas. Um, We had one of our listeners from Seattle saying that if she had known much further in advance, she would have flown out to see you. I thought, well, that's kind of a nice compliment. It's not too late to get those tickets. (laughs) And I'm talking about airline tickets. Right, you still (laughs) think a couple of days left. We've been, we started on air in 2007. Actually, Gary started without me in 2007, and I I joined him later. Not without you. You were my producer. I was your producer, but I wasn't on air with you. You stepped up to the big leagues quickly. Our first uh, interview with you, Mark, was in 2009. Wow. Before your book was published, I think we were the second never letting second go. radio show to interview you ever. So we we've kind of grown up together. I I did look up. Uh, I, I checked with the accountant, and the uh, you have this is your fifteenth appearance on our show in no twelve and a half years. Way. Oh yeah. my goodness! I mean, I knew it. Yeah. I, I was thinking it's like you know maybe fifth or sixth. It's like wow, fifteen. Well, you know, it's, 15, it's always yeah. yeah, it's always so much fun working with uh, with the two of you, and you always give me really good questions. That's what I love about being on it. You make you know you make me think. Okay. And vice versa, yes, to say the least. Yes, and vice versa for sure. Mark, I have a, a a story. It's more than an anecdote. A story from World War II. We seem to be discussing life and death in wartime today, and we certainly can understand why, being December 7th. I wanted to mention this from their, the point of view of the RAF, the Royal Air Force. 
It's a story I read some years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I would love for you to put it into context metaphysically, as only you can do, Mark. The story goes like this, in brief. There was a young man who was a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force. He was battling German fighters, the, the Luftwaffe, during World War II. He grew up on a farm, and his parents awaited his return, and they had a family dog. And the dog would sometimes go out and sleep, or maybe a lot of the time, sleep out by the barn. And one night during World War II, the dog began to howl miserably. And this is the middle of the night, miserably. There just with, with like a racking grief in its voice. And so the parents of this fighter pilot, they're wondered what was causing it. Well, there's a, is there an animal out there? Is it being attacked? What's going on? And then we went out and they looked, and the dog was beside himself. And so they did their best to comfort him, maybe brought him inside, I don't know, in order to try to deal with this, this uh, emergency. And, you know, there was an uneasy feeling. That why would this be happening? We can't see any reason why this dog would be howling this way. And then, within a matter of uh, a couple of days, I guess, they received word that their son had been killed in action, flying somewhere in Europe and engaging the German Luftwaffe. So um, they had to deal with the shock and the grief there. And when they were able to do so sooner rather than later, they inquired there at the uh, British military registry where they could get any information from the front lines. And they were given the, the details of this encounter were there any other pilots killed? Where was the plane? Where did it crash, et cetera? They were able to determine by accounting for the difference in time zones, okay? They were able to determine that just about at the time the dog began howling in grief and misery was just about exactly the time that their son went down under enemy wow. fire and died. Now, the dogs in England... And their son died in action somewhere in the skies over Europe. And I ask you, if you can put it in a metaphysical context, how could such a thing be possible? You know, in, in both my books, in Never Letting Go and in Evidence Paternity, I write about this type of phenomenon. And in, in uh, Never Letting Go, um, my grandfather, uh, my mother's father, he was dying of cancer, and he was in New York, and we were living in, in Florida, and she wakes up um, on a Sunday morning, and, you know, the weird thing is it actually may have been December 7th, now that I'm thinking about it, so this is rather poignant, and she sees her father standing in the doorway of her bedroom looking young and handsome and beautiful, okay, and it was at the precise moment that he died because uh, she called her mother, brother, and sister. Nobody answered. And then about an hour later, her brother, my uncle Joey, called, and, and uh, he was sobbing, saying how dad had passed. Now, what's fascinating is that this is involving an animal. Well, in Evidence Fraternity, I, I explain in a chapter on animal communication. Um, any being capable of the emotion of love is capable of spirit communication. And clearly, this pilot had a very strong emotional bond with this animal. And when we die, when we physically die, the electromagnetic field in our brain, which you and I may call a soul or a spirit, leaves. 
Okay, so, so think of your brain as a computer hard drive, and when the hard drive crashes, the, the energy of the brain, the electromagnetic field, separates. The big question is, do you maintain uh, your personality, coherence, does consciousness exist beyond the body? I would say unequivocally, absolutely, that it does. And so what happened here is this pilot dies, and his energy, he went because he went to see his family. Because spirits are pure energy, and they move at the speed of light, because they're in the electromagnetic spectrum. And everything in the electromagnetic spectrum, electricity, light, radio waves, gamma rays, microwaves, x-rays, ultraviolet, all moves at light speed. And I would venture to say that he went to see his parents, and people tend to dismiss or tune out, or they're not paying attention uh, many times when a spirit's attempting to make contact. Animals, on the other hand, that's why I tell people like in phone readings and in personal readings, please remove the animal from the room. Not that I'm being an ogre about that, but what happens, dogs in particular, cats do too, but cats will sort of like freak out and then go hide under something. But dogs will get agitated and start barking. And, and uh, because what happens is the dog is able to perceive the presence of spirits. And so the animal recognized the, this young, young pilot, this young man, but it's very disconcerting for the animal, too, because they know that the loved one, that the, the human that they love is there, but he can't smell him, he can't, you know, touch him, and so the dog becomes agitated and they begin to express themselves, which is by barking. So I would bet dollars to donuts that's exactly what happened here. And so the animal um, knew something was wrong, but didn't have the, the wherewithal to articulate it in a means that, that the, uh, the parents of this uh, young pilot were able to understand. That is a great explanation of the circumstances in the story as I presented it. But also, Mark, you're allowing us to look at the paradigm. I've heard from different people who investigate these things that... It, if it's a matter of like flipping a coin or standing something on its head to get a different perspective. It's one thing to say, well, when the brain dies, this is electrico electrical and chemical activity in the brain. When the brain shuts down, you die. And there are ways to scientifically account for this tunnel of light experience and that phenomenon in near-death experiences. That's really all it is. It's purely a physical phenomenon. And then people will, if they're metaphysically inclined, will say, you haven't taken into account the idea that the consciousness factor may be unbounded so that it's not a matter of the brain containing consciousness, more it's consciousness using the brain as a vehicle of expression and even a filter of information, and that consciousness is imperishable. Absolutely. Uh, one of the reasons that I, I speak at um, near-death experience conferences like the International Association Near-Death Studies is to explain this on a quantum level, because what we know is that all matter is made of molecules, which are made of atoms, which are composed of electrons, protons, and neutrons, and those particles are made of a smaller particle known as quanta, which is pure electromagnetic energy, which means everything that exists from um, everything. Uh, the air we're breathing, us, 
the light we're seeing, the space between Earth and the sun, the, the nuclear reactions within the sun, everything on its most basic subatomic level is made up of the same energy. In other words, this is what I believe God is. God is energy, and the intelligence flows through this. But uh, that, that's another, another uh, topic. But what happens is when a human being dies, um, the electromagnetic, the quantum energy leaves the brain. And because everything is energetically interconnected is how spirits are able to communicate with us and move as quickly as, as they do. And what, what really shoots a hole in the skeptic's argument about, well, maybe a near-death experience of going through the tunnel and seeing the light is a function of the dying brain. Well, there are several incidents, uh, not several. How about um, an astronomical number of accounts of people whose consciousness separates. Let's say um, there was a, um, an account of a woman who died on an operating table, and all of a sudden her spirit wafted a few, few doors down the hallway and saw her sister crying and praying in the chapel of the hospital and heard exactly what she was saying. And then the next day, um, when she, she was revived, you know, a few minutes later, and then the next day, told her exactly what her sister was wearing, what she said, what she was praying. There was a woman in Japan who died, on, uh, and she was resuscitated, and she told her parents, she said, I went into this light, and she goes, I saw my sister. She goes, but that cannot be, for my sister is alive. And her parents started weeping, and they said, your sister was killed in a car accident yesterday. Okay, this woman didn't know that. So if this is a function of a dying brain, how is it that this dying brain suddenly acquires all of this information that was not in the brain? And, and so that's why there's always going to be skeptics and cynics and naysayers and negative people, and they certainly have a right to be narrow-minded, but that's not what it is. And while they have a right to be that way, what we do as practitioners and experts in these fields is produce present the evidence. Whether somebody wants to pay attention to it or listen to it, that is their choice. Mark, thank you so much. What a perfect way to end this hour. His books are Never Letting Go, Heal Grief with Help from the Other Side. And Mark Anthony's other book, there's a third one on the way, but here's another one, Evidence of Eternity, Communicating with Spirits for Proof of the Afterlife. I look forward to meeting you and your wonderful friend and promoter, Rocky Trainer, when you show up next Friday in Sarasota. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. And to all the listeners, um, have a merry Ramahana Kwanzaa. <laughs> I love that. Excellent. Right. Stay tuned. Jupiter is rising on the other side of NBC Radio News. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.